Hello and salam. Welcome to Muslim Viewpoint, a new podcast series powered by American Muslim Today. We're a groundbreaking nonprofit digital newspaper who champions civic engagement. AMT informs and empowers the diverse voices of almost 30 million Muslims here in the US and other Western countries. I'm Rifat Malik, I'm AMT's Editor-in-Chief, and today we have an interview with the Reverend Peter Johnson, who is a lifelong civil rights activist who marched on Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he talks to us about his journey through a segregated America and into the modern battle against gun violence here in the States. He spoke to our reporter, Maya Gaylor. Uh, I'm from the Cajun part of South Louisiana, the Bayou part. Um, my Cajun name is Basile, B-A-Z-I-E-L, Basile Peter Jerome Johnson. Uh, it means to be as free as the wind. Um, I literally grew up in the historic civil rights movement in South Louisiana. So I grew up with colored and white signs. And I went to all black schools. Um, when I was growing up, going to school, the schools were segregated. The white kids went to white schools, the colored kids went to colored schools. Um, I grew up in a home that was very sensitive to the challenges that faced people of color. My father was president of the NAACP and friends with Roy Wilkins and Thurgood Marshall. So I grew up being influenced by my father, his friends, and the church I grew up in, the Plymouth Rock Baptist Church was bombed four times in 63, tear gas bombed, summer 63, four times. It is the black church where Louisiana State Police rode their horses in our church and trampled people. It is the church where the civil rights movement started in that church. Uh, it is the church where at one time everybody who was old enough was in jail. <laughs> if you wasn't in jail, it was because when they arrested you, they were, you were too young for them to hold. <laughs> so that's the church I grew up in. The pastor of my church was a man named Jetson Davis. He pastored Plymouth Rock Baptist Church that would become known in the Civil Rights Movement as the Freedom Rock Church. His brother name was A.L. Davis, we call him Jack, Uncle Jack. He pastored Mount Zion in New Orleans. In 1957, Martin King, when he left Montgomery, he didn't go to Atlanta, he went to Uncle Jack in New Orleans. That's where the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was born in New Orleans, organized by Martin King and uh, Uncle Jack, in Uncle Jack's church. I, I grew up calling Uncle Jack and Uncle Jack uncles because they were my father's, they grew up with my father. And I grew up calling both of them uncle. Uh, 
they were great leaders in the civil rights movement. They were the men who Martin King looked up to for leadership. The March on Washington, which is August 28, 1963, it is where Martin King told the world about his dream. August 28, 1963. I have lead the Louisiana delegation to the March on Washington. I was 18 years old. Why would an 18-year-old little boy lead, be a part of the leadership to go to Washington for the March on Washington? Very simple. All the men was in jail. <laughs> Reverend Davis was in jail. Mr. Harlow, who was the principal of my school, was all of the men was in jail because of civil rights violations and protesting. So the responsibility fell on the shoulders of children, young men like myself, Spiva and Kenny, we were all kids. Growing up in the civil rights movement, the greatest challenge for me was to accept Martin King's teachings of nonviolence. People spitting on you, slapping you, hitting you, kicking you, hitting you with billy clubs. Understanding the need to remain nonviolent for the goals and to achieve the goals was a great challenge for me and my generation. Um, I attribute my relationship with Andrew Young, uh, who was my boss in the civil rights movement, who helped me overcome wanting to have fist fights with people <laughs> and to accept nonviolence as a way for our people to make progress in this racist country called America. Um, I came to Dallas in 1969 and the young drove me to the airport in Atlanta the night I flew, I flew to Dallas. Andy drove me to the airport. Normally when I would be traveling, Andy would drive me to the airport, pull up to the airport, I'd jump out the car, get my luggage, go catch my plane. This night, Andy pulled up to the airport, got out of the car with me, came around to the trunk of the car for me to get my luggage and began to talk about, talk to me about how dangerous white people in Dallas was. And to emphasize, they killed the president in Dallas, Peter. Do not go down there and get killed. He emphasized over and over how dangerous Dallas was. And to do my assignment and come back alive. All of the years I had worked in the civil rights movement, Andy Young had been my boss. I had never seen this concern on his face until that night when I got ready to fly to Dallas. Uh, and his deep concern about this part of the country and how racist and potentially violent my trip could be. I was coming to Dallas, Martin King was dead. This is 1969, Martin was killed in 68. When Martin King was assassinated, he did not have life insurance. Nobody would sell it to him. 
He didn't have money. He had four little bitty children and a widow. Harry, well, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, got in touch with us. And a Jewish producer from Hollywood named Samuel Livingston, Sammy, Harry Belafonte, and Sidney asked to meet with us. We would meet with them in Atlanta at Pascal's. They came with an idea. The idea was we believe we can take Dr. King's life and produce a documentary based on all of the news footage that exists on his life. And we can make this documentary and it could premiere in 800 cities around the world. They could take all of this money and put it in this some kind of investment fund from Mrs. King that would give her income to raise Martin's babies. That's what this was about. And when the documentary was ready, we met it again at past because all of us, and decided that the movie was going to premiere in 800 cities around the world. And they had this big, huge map of the world. And I'm looking at this map sitting in this meeting, and I'm thinking, I know exactly where I want to go. So I put my hand up. Reverend Abernathy said, Peter, put your hand down. I put my, no, Dr. Abernathy, I got something to say. He said, Peter, put your hand down. What do you want anyway? I want to go to the Virgin Islands. He said, oh, no, Peter, you're going to Dallas. So the decision to send me, send me to Dallas, Texas had to do with Love Field and my knowledge of the Southwest because of SWAC, the black colleges and universities. The movie was going to premiere in 800 cities around the world. Please hear this. 799 cities on earth Welcome the movie on Martin King's life. That was only one city in the world who basically said, and this is their words to my face, that nigger's movie is not going to be shown in this city. This is what, can't think his name, who was over the Dallas Citizens Council, looked in my face and said to me, uh, with Eric Johnson, who was the mayor of the city, sitting next to him. I can't think of his name. Now, for all of the young men growing up in the civil rights movement, I was the worst one for somebody like that to say that too. Because all that did was make me say, oh yes it is. Come hell or high water, and then a goddamn thing you can do to stop it, we're going to do this here. If we have to put a sheet on the house and show it in the streets, this movie will be shown in this city. Uh, so for me, it was a challenge that had to do with the whole legacy of the civil rights movement. Uh, what, what, would we allow the racist power structure in this city to keep black people from seeing what the, 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 the movie on Martin King's life? Uh, not on my watch. No, not on my watch. So the decision to show the movie here in spite of fighting with the power structure, the decision to send for our national lawyers, which I did, you know, and to send for help, which I did, uh, reached out to my friends around the nation 
And one of the unique part of growing up in the civil rights movement in the South is the relationship between the young people in the South. We were, we had a, a unique, very special kind of brotherhood that existed with kids in the South. Black kids, white kids, Jewish kids, brown kids, the relationship between students. In other words, my friends was my friends. They would come to my age just like I would go to their age. And I'm talking about black kids, Jewish kids, white kids, brown. The, 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 the relationship between the students and the, and the civil rights movement was a unique brotherhood that existed between us. And I knew if I would send for them, if they had to hitchhike that club. And, and if it meant going to jail, they, did, they was not scared to go to jail. So I knew that no matter what the city of Dallas said, and when I sent for them, they poured into Dallas from all, all the way from Northern California, from New Jersey and New York with their long hair and the hippie, I mean, they pulled into Dallas. By the time January the first came, they were here from all over. I probably had more than 600 kids here ready to go to jail with me. So on December the 30th, maybe, whatever is New Year's Eve, we met in the basement of Mark Herbner's church, which is Martin Luther King, not where it was Forest Avenue then. It was Mount Olive Lutheran Church. Really unique piece of history. Mount Olive Lutheran Church was located in the middle, the heart of black South Dallas, this Lutheran church on Forest Avenue, which would become Martin Luther King Boulevard. This Lutheran church, all black, pastored by a white man, probably the most militant black preacher in South Dallas was a German white man. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, unique piece of history. The movie was a big success, financially. The money was going back to Atlanta. So I was going to go and visit my parents, then go to Atlanta. Um, there were people in jail here, and I thought we needed to use our resources and our knowledge to get them out of jail. Uh, and I had these people begging me for help called the Fair Park Homeowners. So one night, some people knocked on my door. I'm living in a hotel in downtown Dallas. I go to the door, and these people standing in my door. A man named Albert Lipscomb, black woman named Elsa Faye Higgins, African-American man named J.B. Jackson, and a white minister who was a professor at Perkins, Dr. William Farmer, who was a theology professor at Perkins School of Theology at my door. And they told me they wanted to talk to me about Fair Park. Never heard of Fair Park. Invited them in to my hotel room. They came in and began to explain to me that the city was taking their homes. 
And they had this elderly African-American man with him. His name was Mr. Gideon Johnson. Mr. Gideon Johnson. He was an elderly man. And he began to explain to me in my hotel room that the city was taking his house. And he began to cry and weep. And he told me if Martin Luther King was alive, he would help us keep our houses, our homes. And this old man began to weep. And I tried to explain to him, well, you know, I'm on an assignment. I'm not supposed to get involved in local stuff. I'm here for, I have a national assignment. And I got five states in my school. I don't have time to fool with it. Uh, and this old man began to cry. He shook his hand in my face and he told me if Martin Luther King was alive, he would help us save our homes. Never forget that day and that pain in that old man's eyes, in his face. Uh, and I agreed to come and visit Val Park. And I explained to them that in the civil rights movement, we knew something about eminent domain. Eminent domain constitutionally is absolute. I don't care how much money you can raise, how many great lawyers you have, you're going to lose that. You can't win a fight over eminent domain. If the government wants to take your land to build a highway, the only fight is about how much they're going to pay you for it. You can't stop them from taking it. This is lessons I knew personally because of Baker versus Carr came out of Tennessee, Baker versus Carl, was a case that I studied in constitutional law, but in a case that the civil rights movement knew all about. So I knew that there's no way in the world you're gonna stop a city, a municipality, or a school board from taking somebody's land. So I tried to explain to Mrs. Higgins, Albert Lipscomb, and J.B. Jackson, and all of the Fire Park homeowners, you all are wasting your money. They're going to take your land. The fight has to be over fair market value of your land. You can't stop them from taking it. But I will do all I can to help and I will bring the civil rights movement with me. And which I did. And his uncle was here. He was the only Negro in the city council. His name was George Allen. I call him Uncle George. I thought I could help the Fair Park homeowners if I stayed. I couldn't stop them from taking their land, but I could make them pay fair market value. I can make it about money. I can make the fight about money. The city is determining the value of the property based on the color of the property owner. So I know we got them. The white property, we got a black family written right next to the same house, same lot, same square footage, same everything. The only difference is the color of the owner. So I know we have them. So we use the stupidity of the city of Dallas to win the fight over fair market value. You couldn't stop the city from, and once we won that fight, what it said to other black property owners is you can get fair market value for your property, but you can't stop eminent domain. And that's what that was about. Yeah. So, um, 
Well, first you have to understand, I was a teenager now. It's 1963, I was 18 years old, but I was president of the youth chapter of the NAACP in my hometown. Uh, and during that summer, that was the summer of mass protest, tear gas, going in and out of jail, being beat, the church being tear gas bombed, terrible, terrible summer. Also the summer of Birmingham, the bombing of the churches in Birmingham. This is the summer of revolt. Getting ready for the march on Washington um, and um, I don't remember that much about raising money for the march on Washington because I was only 18 years old. But I remember preparing for the march on Washington and what I remember sitting in meetings in uh, Reverend Davis's office with other leaders including James Farmer discussing the dangers of going across the South in an integrated bus to Washington and uh, planning how to just planning how to do that safely. What I remember about coming up to the March on Washington is the jails are fooled with protesters. I mean fooled. For the March on Washington Five of the big six spoke at the March on Washington. James Farmer did not speak at the March on Washington. He was the only member of the big six national leaders not to speak. Why didn't James Farmer speak at the March on Washington on August 28, 1963? He was in jail in my hometown, along with the principal of my school, the pastor of my church, uh, so Jim was in jail, and they voted to stay in jail. So organizing the buses, getting ready for the march on Washington, fell on the shoulders of young people like myself. And um, I remember leaving from in front of the church with the buses that night, heading for Washington, and uh, the prayers of people praying. Because if you're going across the South in chartered, integrated buses, Everywhere you stop, it's going to be dangerous. Everywhere you stop. Uh, coming all the way across the south, there were buses stopped, people in jail all over the south trying to get to the March on Washington. But um, there was a half a million people around. Uh, it's an experience as an 18-year-old little boy I never forget. Experiences at the March on Washington was wonderful. One of the things I remember is um, there were so many people at the March on getting it organized where you can, we were going to walk from the Washington Monument, George Washington. To the Lincoln Memorial, with Abraham Lincoln, and getting that organized with half a million people—that was a part of the responsibility of the young organizers, us, James Orange, Eddie Osborne, 
We were responsible for Zog and McKinnon and so many people that you couldn't see. So the police was telling us how large the crowd was. Me and a bunch of young men, we climbed up in the trees so we could see the crowd. And once I climbed, I could look and see. This, I can't explain this sight. Black, white, brown people, red, just all of God's children, as far as I could see out of that tree, with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's, it's, it's a view I'll never forget. Uh, now, I remember watching Dr. King speak and from this podium and this black leather binder that he was speaking from, Dr. King looked at that crowd, looked back at the people behind him, and he closed that binder and grabbed that podium. And when he did that, he's, Dr. Walker said, and you could, we could hear him say it, uh-oh, we're going to church now. And when Martin done that, and closed that speech up and uh, began to tell the world about his dream. Uh, it's an experience, it's hard to explain the magic of that time uh, in Martin's eyes and how quiet these people got. Um, that as he began to, now he's not speaking from a speech, he's speaking from his heart and he's talking about his dream and his little children. For me, it's an experience I'll never forget. It's, uh, I still get goosebumps and tears when I think about that day. And because um, um, most of the people that travel with me, they aren't with us anymore. Um, I knew when, when I left Washington, D.C., that I would have uh, a permanent commitment. So what was your reaction to Dr. King's assassination? I don't think I'll ever get over the shock. For all of us who are still alive, there's 16 of us alive. Uh, grappling with Martin's assassination is still as painful today as it was years ago. It's very difficult. When Martin King was killed, for me, it was like somebody stole the sun out of my sky. How sacred that time was for me. To continue was a big, 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 big challenge for me. Every year, I tell my wife, this is gonna be my last year, then I'm gone. But every year, I wanna do more and more to do something about the gun violence. Uh, over the last 20-some years, I have bought more than 3,000 guns off the streets in South Dallas for my children. We have a national problem in America with children killing children. It is something we cannot ignore in black America. We have a serious kind of a gun neurosis.
that exist from Harlem to Watts. We are shooting at our children are shooting at each other. Uh, it is something I want to do in ten cities. I want to create it. efforts to take handguns off the streets and to create ways to reduce the violence, gun violence in our communities. Yeah, so what would you say about um, how activism has changed throughout the, throughout the years? Because obviously, you know, we have activism now around gun violence because people do get killed every day. Um, a few years ago, we had, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, really come to fruition. Um, so kind of, you know, what do you have to say about modern activism? This is the first generation in America of white kids who don't see color. They, they, they don't. That is so far from, if you take, and the reason I talk like, I got grandsons, 13, 14, 15 year old little boys. They got friends, not white friends, not black friends, not, they got friends. And that's, I mean, and it, that generation is so w weird and different because when they talk about each other, they don't be talking about, well, they're white kids, they're black kids, they're brown kids. They're just friends. We're going to shoot the ball. They're my friends. So they have grown up. And, and it, that, that world is so different than the world from yesterday that uh, it, it's, for instance, um, gay, the gay community. Well, you if you go to high schools today and talk to kids, they don't give a shit about who you sleep with or who you don't sleep with. That's not an issue no more. So in other words, when I was a kid growing up, if somebody was gay, they need to keep that a secret because they were going to be discriminated against by their peers and hated by their peers. Not this generation. They don't give a shit about it. So the world has changed. Um, technology challenges the world to come to grips with information. You can't hide from information because of technology. Uh, so knowledge today is at the tip of your fingers. You know. Um, I am very, very positive on what's going on. Uh, one of the things that's going on, America is probably one, probably less than 10 years from a black woman becoming president of the United States. I may live long enough to see that. That's getting, that's getting ready to happen in America. And it has to do with women. Uh, one of the problems that white men are facing in America is you can't bullshit white women no more because of technology, because of knowledge. You can't con uh, and play the kind of stupidity games anymore with your daughter. I am um, more concerned with how we're going to save God's planet than how we're going to relate to each other. Uh, and I don't know whether or not if um, the petrochemical in industry has poisoned the 
earth and atmosphere to a point of no return? I hope not, but if we, we may be getting close to it. As someone who has lived through segregation and the civil rights movement, and you, like you said, you see kids today, they don't care about um, you know, who they're friends with. Um, what is that like, and what kind of hope does that give you for the future? And how does that feel, having dedicated your life to activism? Um, I can remember Governor George Wallace saying over his dead body, University of Alabama would never be integrated over his dead body. Kids walking the hallways and the campuses of the University of Alabama don't pay no attention to what color somebody is at the University of Alabama. We knew we could change the sign. But it would take a generation to change the hearts. That generation is here. You see, the generation of my grandchildren's peers uh, they don't know a world without friends of all kinds of races. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week from me and Maya. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at American Muslim Today. And if you'd like to read more about this story and access more digital content, please feel free to check out our website, AmericanMuslimToday.com. We'll see you next week on The Muslim Unit.